With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Arrett on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to this week's episode of Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio. I, as always, am your host, Matt Arrett, and joining with me today will be three excellent guests. We have, uh, first, we're going to have uh, Glenn Deason, a, uh, an incredible commentator I've been following for years uh, he has just recently written an extremely strategic and important book that everybody should be picking up and reading called Ukraine War and the Eurasian World Order. After that, we're going to have George Zamueli, another geopolitical analyst extraordinaire who's a frequent guest in RT, host a show, uh, who's going to be going through a lot of material regarding how we got here, where we're going. And we're going to follow that up by an American patriot who uh, has a lot to say about saving the republic and what's going on right now on the front lines, J- Jason Nelson. So, uh the first guest I have, I'll just welcome him in here. Glenn Deason, thank you for coming on board. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Well, Glenn, I, the world right now is certainly uh, going through a lot of, I guess, turbulence is probably not the right word for it, but maybe. Um, there's definitely a system change. There's something different in the air. The consequence of many decades of bad thinking, maybe even centuries of very, very bad thinking has uh, come home to roost. And now we're paying up sort of, I guess, the the consequences for tolerating very bad ideas that have done a lot of damage to ourselves, to the world. And something very, very big as far as a paradigm shift, some form of massive change is going to happen for good or for bad. And maybe that future is underdetermined. It, it certainly is. There's, there's a, a very definite um, sign of a fight over what the new operating system is going to be. You recently wrote a book, and I think it's just so important that people take the time to get um, historical context, to reframe and reevaluate what is this this world that we're living in? Because we're all being, we're living through a blitzkrieg of of opinionators, talking heads, telling us how to think and feel about every little thing. You know, um, Navalny just recently died and, you know, we're supposed to feel like, oh, that's Putin, again, more evidence that he is this authoritarian villain Hitler figure that's just killing his democratic opponents. And we've gotten all of this messaging about, you know, Israel going under attack by by fascists who want to destroy Israel like new like like Hitler did. And, and we've got the same thing for uh, Ukrainian freedom fighters just fighting for freedom against the desire of a new Nazi regime that wants to take over the world. And so we've got a lot of this 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 invocation of feelings devoid of just a, a sober-headed evaluation of what's really going on what was the 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 what is it that shaped hitler in the first place uh, what what is it that that's really happening and, and in your book ukraine war and the eurasian world order um you do a lot of that so let me just ask you this as a starting point very open wide open question what motivated you to write this book what is the 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 core um driver for you in taking the time to write this idea of the Eurasian world order, bringing in also questions of deep history like Westphalia as well? Well, I guess at the beginning of the war, uh, when Russia invaded, that is, in 2022, uh, what, well, what, well, not took me by surprise, but what was noteworthy was that, you know, on the first day after the invasion, uh, you know, Zelensky confirmed that Moscow had contacted them, that they still want to negotiate neutrality. And on the third day, they agreed on talks. And at the same time, 
the American spokesperson said, no, we do not support any talks. Uh, uh, this is bigger than Ukraine. It's bigger. Uh, it's, it's much bigger. It's about uh, how we structure the world. And after this, of course, uh, many people in Russia began to talk about a, a conflict of world order. This is the same in the United States, Poland. So you see the same rhetoric coming across. And I very much agree with this because we've had, uh, of course, we had the other conflicts, uh, wars, but usually after the Cold War between minor powers, uh, that is the US and NATO against smaller powers. But now, of course, it's a war against uh, a, a nuclear, the largest nuclear power. And one has to question why is it there's no in interest at all for any a solution and uh, again as many different interviews with uh, american british leaders have suggested it's you know they won't accept anything else than regime change in moscow and strategic defeat and uh, i think it's it, you have to see this also in the context of the confrontation against china and other great powers and there's a huge shift uh, going on uh, that is that we i argue that it's a changing world order which has which is shifting now from unipolarity to a multipolar system, which has a huge ramifications, uh, you know, the, in terms of the international distribution of power, the way uh, international law and rules are decided, uh, the, the legitimacy for wielding power, to focus on universalism or uh, or allow accommodate the specifics of different uh, civilizations. All of this is being currently determined and you see also when the chinese lean in on this this is what they're also communicating effectively so it is um i think this has to be best understood as a uh, as a conflict of uh, of a world order which is why all these countries great powers are willing to effectively risk everything uh even though the landscape is so uncertain and it's very difficult to navigate through this and you know we can very easily now come at the brink of nuclear war and still no one's pulling back. And this is part of the all or nothing situation we're in in terms of world order. The Americans and uh, their NATO allies would like to, you know, defeat Russia, restore unipolarity. And NATO, of course, is a huge instrument towards this end, also then knocking out China at some point. And uh, meanwhile, Russia, China and, uh, well, I would say the majority of the world is now pulling in the direction of multipolarity. Not that they're against America, but even friends, like if you have the Singaporeans or Indians or yeah, Turks, they, they, they still don't want to live in a unipolar world anymore. They want to have multipolarity. doesn't mean that they're going to ally with Russia against America or ally with China. It just means they don't want to get stuck anymore in this world with one central power. And I think this is uh, the direction we're going. Mm -hmm. No, that, that's well said. And um, I, I guess I'm, I'm speaking out of some of the the more cynical. I'm just I'm putting myself in the in the the shoes of some of the the cynical people out there who have had their their hopes burned quite a bit by false promises of you know globalization will give us global cooperation. And so we all want cooperation, don't we? And though you know, then we get burned and we see what the real thing was uh, intentionally. Um, for though there are some voices who say that oh, this is just another form of uh, of empire. This 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 multipolarism and cooperation and win-win, these are just tricks once again to get us to to agree to empire. Now, I don't I don't believe that. I'm, I'm quite persuaded that that's not true and that there is a very different uh, way of thinking. Um, but how would you how do you respond to those more cynical voices who are just they, they you know, they're they're not willing to believe that anything is different from empire that wants to enslave and control so how that is the unipolar system so what what is your response to that sort of thing 
Well, if uh, the unipolar, well, uh, well, one shouldn't be too cynical of the intentions behind unipolarity. Actually, we had this. Uh, oh, no, I was talking about the. Oh, I was the, talking the about how, how can we know that oh, yeah. the, the multipolar system was actually yeah. uh, not not just another empire. Well, I, I think uh, well, we'll just first is I touch on it. The, the problem with unipolarity is I think it had many good intentions behind it. It's much like when the British in the uh, mid nineteenth century wanted to, they argued that liberal empire was uh, was a force for good. They would dominate and they would spread liberal ideals around the world, and th this you know this would work. And this was largely the sentiment also that the United States had after the Cold War, because uh, again the Soviet Union dissolved and there was only one central power and there was actually a discussion debate you know what what, sh what world should we have should we pull back now you know restore a bit of control of our economy so social problems and, uh, and and build a multipolar system a westfalian system that is or should we go for uh liberal hegemony which is the you know, the british version of the uh, liberal empire and uh, you know the basic idea is this one central power uh, there won't be any rivalry between the great powers and of course because america uh, considers itself the champion of liberalism uh, liberal ideals will elevate first so it's a nice idea behind it uh, of course the problem is uh, if you want to maintain this uh, very quickly you see that uh, it depends on keeping down all other powers so your allies have to be dependent on you and countries which do not uh, submit they will have to be uh, knocked down a peg or knocked out and meanwhile, we see all the liberal ideals suddenly become uh, instrumental uh, to power politics. So, you know, around the world now, whenever NATO begins to talk about human rights and democracy, they can hear the, you know, the, the fighter planes being loaded on with bombs. It's, uh, yes. it's, it's seen in a very negative light. So, so this is kind of why unipolarity is, was always going to be temporary. And in terms of multipolarity, I think it's a concern because for two reasons with this we haven't really had a multipolar system since before the second world war and uh, it was you know defined largely by the rivalry between uh, industrial powers uh, and even back then the multipolar system was was all western there was no non-western states in this so i can see the fear behind it but i would put it the other way around i think it has more potential for stability because um uh, great powers, uh, unconstrained powers, they don't constrain themselves. And that was a key warning by many American realists after the Cold War. If we don't have a balance, we're just going to start expanding in every direction, engage in every silly war, and we're going to exhaust our resources and all our adversaries will collectively begin to balance us. Well, that's a nice description of what has happened, I think. Uh, they've depleted a lot of their resources and we see now uh, organizations like BRICS uh, having a form of a collective balancing against the United States in the economic sphere. Uh, mm. So, but but it doesn't have to be, it's not anti-American, these, uh, these structures by definition, they are just, they're anti-hegemonic to a large extent. Like India doesn't want, uh, you know, American unipolarity, but uh, they're not anti-American. They don't want America, you know, sinking into the sea. Uh, but But overall, I think it offers more peaceful system because uh, in a unipolar system everything is zero sum uh, all adversaries have to mm -hmm. be knocked down a bit in order to perpetuate what can't be perpetuated meanwhile in a multipolar system you see more there's less of an interest to there's more need to harmonize interests so uh, just as a quick example because i always go on a bit is uh, uh, you know, people everyone expected russia and china to go you know to fight each other over uh, the central asia 
but they didn't. And the reason is, yes, they have different formats for how they want to integrate this huge Eurasian landscape, but no one can dominate. They can't be a hegemon. So if China wants to integrate the Eurasian space, it has to harmonize its interest with Russia. And the same, obviously, with Russia. They can't dominate this on their own. So you see this incentive now to accommodate others. Um, and I think that you know this is a reason for hope. Uh, yeah. For example, when they saw the expansion of BRICS, what did they bring? Did they build an alliance against America? No, they brought in the members which uh, view each other as a uh, as problem. So they want to seek security with other members, not against non-members. So they brought in Egypt, Ethiopia. They have a conflict, you know, over water. They brought in the Saudis, the Iranians. Obviously, yeah, they're hardly good friends. And so the idea is, you know, you don't pick one against the other, build alliance systems. Instead, you they, it's based on a more of a collective security idea. Yeah, no, that, that's an incredibly important notion. And I think we've just lived under so much hegemony um, and duplicity that it's very difficult to sort of see, to shift our mind's eye a little bit and just sort of see that, in fact, self-interest is better maintained and business is better maintained when you look for points of collaboration. And Putin made that point very clear with his uh, his now super famous uh, conversation with Tucker Carlson a week or a week and a half ago. Uh, when when Tucker was pushing a little bit on on, you know, I think he was sort of feeling him out a little bit to see like, well, where, where, yeah. where do you stand? Are you guys afraid of China? Is there something we can so is there something that can be worked with to maybe revive um, a U.S. Russia special relationship that we came close to 20 years ago? Maybe we can get something against China, maybe. And Putin just very clearly shot it down, made it clearly known. no. <laughs> Xi Jinping and 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 I are friends. <laughs> it's they they have a different way of doing things. Uh, what did you think of uh, of Putin's response uh, to that? Do you think uh, yeah? I think it was good. It was a good response. Uh, I think there's a lot of people and uh, many on the Republican side who, who who thinks that you know we can if we win over Russia then they will turn on the Chinese. So you kind of, they want to off, uh, you know, dangle this a little bit in front. You know, we could be friends, but wouldn't you be worried about Chinese more than us? And, you know, a little bit of what Kissinger and Nixon pulled off in the early 70s. Uh, so they, they, they split the Chinese from the Soviets because you want to, you know, and, and actually that makes much more sense because you want to embrace the weaker part, uh, you know, and encourage in, in their threat, their their fear of the larger one. At that time, it was little China against the big Soviet Union, and then you know they felt uh, you know a bit threatened. So America came in, was able to split them apart. Now, of course, you have people like Tucker Carlson and a lot of others who are quite optimistic. You know, if we just we can we can pull it off again. This uh, decoupling. All we have to do is uh, you know come to the Russians, tell them you know, we're going to be best of friends. And then they will leave uh, the Chinese and come to us. But uh, it's it, it's simply it's, it's not going to happen. I think uh, this is why the Ukraine war was was such a huge moment shift in world history. Because uh, again, the war started in 2014 after the NATO countries toppled the government and then began to well slaughter the people, uh, the Eastern Ukrainians who opposed uh, the coup. And anyways, until this point. Um, you know, for the 30 years since Gorbachev's time, uh, they have been pursuing this idea of a greater Europe. And their goal was essentially to have an inclusive European security architecture. This was the goal. And it's not even, even in the longer time frame. If you look since Peter the Great in the early 1700s, uh, you know, he wanted to integrate Russia, make it more European. So for 300 years, Russia's had a Western-centric foreign policy. If they want to modernize, it always meant Europeanize. Not anymore. 
for the first time now they they see well we can modernize we can look to the east they begin to look towards europe more as you know decadence uh, economic stagnation and hostility meanwhile they look to the east they see you know flexible economies growth uh, not the same cultural decadence they don't like in the west and instead of being hated they are welcomed so so there's a huge shift now. For the first time in 300 years, the Russians don't want to have a Western-centric foreign policy. They want to go to the East. And that's what happened in 2014. If anyone wants to know why the sanctions didn't work, since 2014, they began to decouple. They didn't want greater Europe. They wanted greater Eurasia. So they began to establish you know, economic ties, technology, transportation corridors, banks, currencies, everything with the East, and uh, make themselves more and more immune to sanctions. So... So in mm -hmm. in short, no, they're not going to go with uh, uh, Tucker Carlson's proposal because, of course, once they would have defeated China, they would come after the Russians. So it's exactly. Uh, I I, th I think they know how this will end. Yeah, it might have it might have worked if we had a time machine can go back to 1999 or 2000. Maybe maybe this could have worked when Russia was still open to the possibility of joining NATO. But I think it's been made very clear that um the hegemon has shown its colors its true hand and nobody trusts what this thing is and i think that gives me a lot of hope as well that there is a um an ability to not fall an, an awareness of the techniques the tricks of empire that have plagued us for centuries that i think for the first time i'm starting to see confidence that enough, there's enough awareness of these techniques from multiple um collaborators around the world civilizational states that there is an ability to properly navigate through and not bite the bait that is being left for us to fall into cycles of destruction. So that gives me a lot of hope. We're going to keep on pulling on this thread when we come back after a short commercial break on TNT Radio Live. TNT's Jeremy Nell. Nice comment here from Rebecca. She says the youngest people um, I work with are a bit more mature, but their interactions with the public is stifled. And she's referring to the excessive use of cell phones and social media and how it's making them so antisocial also. The business is open six days a week. One of his staff members formally requested that they shouldn't, you know, that they could they be given permission not to have to work on Wednesdays so that they could help at the dog shelter. Now, as you know, I'm a dog lover. I have hunting dogs. I've got dogs coming out of my ears, my Malinois. And this dog, this Malinois, is bright even by Malinois standards. She can do crossword puzzles. Is lying under my desk at the moment, feeling sorry for herself because she's just come on heat for the first time and she's completely bewildered. She doesn't know why she's bleeding to death. It's not about whether it's a good or a bad thing to work at animal shelters. That's a delightful thing. It's a noble thing to do. But who in their right minds goes to their boss and says, would you mind? I'd rather not work on Wednesdays if it's okay, because I've got other priorities in a, in a town down the road. Jeremy now on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. News Talk Radio listeners are some of the most active and involved listeners of any format. TNT Radio listeners rely on TNT Radio often as their primary source of information. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Today's News Talk Radio. Come on, let the man talk. We never censor our hosts. Good. Now, talk. Uncensored news. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. 
All right, welcome back to the second segment of the first hour on Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio, where I'm joined by Glenn Deason, a geopolitical analyst, author, uh, who has written Ukraine War and the Eurasian World Order, an important new book for people to read and that we're, we're just unpacking and discussing a little bit as far as how a lot of these historical forces are playing into the current world and shaping different potential future pathways, some of which are much more desirable than others uh, to live in. But that requires that we all be under in a state of understanding of what are the forces shaping us and that we can participate in, in varying amplitudes, shaping if we have knowledge. If we're ignorant, it doesn't work. So Glenn, um, we had people listening have heard you and us allude very briefly to this question of Westphalia, Westphalian order. It came up a couple of times so far. It comes up a lot in your book. Um, you begin with a, a chapter on Westphalia, you end with the question of uh, what does the uh, Eurasian uh, Westphalian world order look like I myself having heard that a few years ago what it would have meant very little to me uh, because I don't I didn't think in terms of historical context but when I did hear Tony Blair I heard a speech he gave in 1999 I heard Kissinger deliver or I read the transcript of a, of a very big speech he gave as well both of whom were talking about the need to move into a post Westphalian world order this is just in the onset of the war against terrorism. Um, I began to realize that these figures who are shaping or misshaping so much of world history are thinking about things that I don't understand. So I had to look into it. And then I began to realize what an important idea this is. So for those who may not know, what is the Westphalian world order? Let's just clarify that for people. What What is, what is Westphalia? Well, Westphalia can be considered the foundation of the modern world order. So this is a nice uh, point of departure for if you want to explore world order. And uh, well, what was before it was, well, we had the Roman, whole Roman Empire. And uh, also during this time, we had a, a long period of time referring to as Pax Romana, which was only, you know, one dominant hegemon. And that brought, uh, you know, stability, prosperity. However, uh, with the Reformation, you began to then, it began as a religious war. Suddenly, we didn't have the same values anymore. You know, Protestants splitting from Catholics and uh, also, yeah, uh, Roman Empire weakening. And now suddenly you're having all these European powers fighting against each other. So you had the 30-year war, uh, war, which was, you know, the most destructive one in Europe at the time, which was from uh, 1617. Uh, sorry, six, 1618 to 48. And at this point, uh, you know, no one could win because as soon as one power seemed to be powerful enough to dominate, the others would simply begin to balance it. So we just slaughtered each other in huge numbers. And at the end, one had to come to the conclusion, we're not going to agree on, we're not going to reach a hegemon and we, we're not going to have the same uh, faith and all of this. So this is when we've developed the Westphalian world order, which means we have to accept the international system has uh, anarchy. That is, we have several poles of power and if one state tries to balance or expand, others will collectively balance. So this is what a balance of power suggests. And uh, and also then uh, we abandoned the idea of universalism because if you have the Catholics saying, listen, uh, everyone is united on the Catholic Church, now you can claim dominance or or sovereignty over people in other countries. So we expect, uh, so this is kind of the, the, the fundamental assumptions now. Uh, and, and it's still very relevant because throughout history, of course, you had uh, efforts to uh, undermine the Westphalian system by, for example, pursuing uh, unipolarity. So I kind of go through the book uh, in the first two chapters, of, you know, the history of um, 
uh, all the way up to the, yeah, the, the present era. And this is um, why the post-Cold War era is interesting, because, of course, in 19th century, the British talked about Pax uh, Britannica after the defeat of Napoleon, which the British effectively ruled since uh, 1815 to a large extent. Um, and But uh, after the Cold War, this is when one began to talk about Pax Americana. This is... Uh, American unipolarity. Now, how would such a system be? We don't have attempts to overthrow the Westphalian system. No longer do we want, uh, you know, all powers to, to balance each other. Instead, we have one dominant one, and and but but then that also impacts what kind of rules we have. Uh, the uh, basics of international law, because international law, according to the UN Charter, was based on sovereign equality. So you have many centers of power, all of them have equal sovereignty. But you're not going to have this international law with a hegemon. So what, so what kind of laws would you expect? What kind of rules would come under hegemon in which you know you want sovereignty for yourself, but not for others? Well, you would want uh, you know democracy promotion because no one are allowed to promote democracy in the U.S. Uh, human rights because you know U.S. has human rights success, but others do not. Uh, you know, global war on terror, all of this has the same dynamic. It's uh, limited sovereignty for the rest and not for us. So in the 19th century, we divided the world, you know, who should have sovereignty? We said civilized people, you know, Christian Europeans, we, we are the civilized ones, we have sovereignty. The rest of the world, the uh, barbarics of, uh, you know, other uh, races and all, they, are, you know, they don't uh, qualify, they can't live up to the responsibility of sovereignty. And this is uh, kind of what we were started to recreate. And they were quite explicit about this, especially on the British side. They denounced the Westphalian system when they wanted to uh, invade Yugoslavia. And also they used this as a reason when they uh, legitimized the invasion of Iraq in 2003. The idea was Westphalia is gone. Uh, we now have uh, a liberal hegemon. Even the advisor of Blair, he called for restoring um, liberal empire again referring to the british in the 19th century and this was the idea listen we we now have universal values and that means the united states and britain uh, can effectively um, will over overrun any sovereign claim by other countries because uh, we are acting in the interest of the best interest of humankind so we are representing all humans in the world because these are universal principles so sovereignty does not apply for us and this is what we call the rules-based international order, in effect. Mm. You, you've just you've just defined the rules-based international order for the first time. I, I've I've always heard the word the words getting flown uh, bantered bantered about, and yet the definition of what it is is never quite solidified. So I appreciate that, yeah. and you need to have that historical context because there isn't something you can read as a charter of what is this rules-based international order is like a set of rules that we can like. All agreeing and talk about and you can't do that. And again, Putin uh, took took quite a few jabs at that fact uh, versus something like the UN Charter, which it's like, okay, we can agree. There's something written we've discussed. We can talk about whether we're abrogating or not these things. Um, but but the idea I think that you just expressed is really good um, on the question of liberalism. Here's a here's something that that was confounding me a little bit. I, I've been thinking about for a while. Um, based on what you just said. Do you think that liberalism itself is one a natural consequence of West, the Westphalian world order of 1648? Um, that's that, do, and two, do you think that that it it really did have noble intentions at the heart of it, and then got corrupted, or that it was always something generated as a philosophical 
um, way of thinking to induce or to facilitate the growth of empire under the cover of niceties that don't mean anything? Well, liberal ideals have been promoted, I guess, uh, advanced quite naturally under development of uh, modernity. So be it the Industrial Revolution or the you know, the political revolutions in France, uh, United States. Uh, so focusing on, you know, individualism, this is, uh, uh, I think, uh, it's, uh, I think, I think to some extent is an unstoppable force. I mean, even, uh, yeah. but, but of course it can be uh, exploited, uh, taken advantage of. And we saw that with the, after the French revolution as well, they, they turned this, uh, this ideal into, uh, what they refer to as idealist internationalism, in which uh, they then claim, well, we're going to go and well, now we are free. We're going to bring freedom to everyone else. And this was what the French parliament stated, I think it was in yeah, 1792. We, we will come to the freedom of all peoples. So once you now claim the right and responsibility to free the people of the world, it it, yeah, it sounds very altruistic, but uh, at the end, it, it ended up with, uh, you know, this liberal campaign. It ended up with the empire. So, uh, you know, with a, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, I, I think this is the the same problem one, uh, what one could have. I wouldn't dismiss liberal ideals, like, you know, freedom is uh, nice as well. But if you, even if you look at Woodrow Wilson, you know, he, he wanted a more uh, elevate the role of humanity in the international system. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, democracy should be safe, all of this. And it's, it sounds very lovely. Uh, the problem is, one, once you put this forth, uh, he converted the United States from being, you know, look at us, we are, you know, a democracy, uh, you know, all these uh, freedoms, uh, you know, we're we we're beacons, which should be emulated. You know, we're an example for others until putting it on a missionary is like a civilizing mission, effectively saying we're going to go out in the world and we're going to bring freedom to people. Now, this is, uh, again, uh, probably good intentions by some, but you can't divorce this from power politics. At the end of the day, you know, states are entities of power competing in this international anarchy uh, mm -hmm. for, for a more dominant position. So I, uh, that's why I think many people had... You know, not necessarily a conspiracy after the sec uh, after the Cold War, but I think it was uh, many had good intentions. They thought, uh, you know, much like the British in the 19th century, you know, we, if we just have concentrate power here in the West, we're the champions of liberal democracy. We're going to spread these values to the whole world. If everyone's democratic, everyone will be peaceful. But uh, again, as, as it turns out, it's not necessarily how the world works. Yeah, right. Well, I guess that's the 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 delicacy uh, or the the delicate uh, line to walk here, right? When you we, it, it's obviously important to help, like to feed people who are uh, hungry, to uh, liberate people who are enslaved. Like these are good virtues, but then obviously um, this could be also misused, as we've seen for so many regime change operations that have that have killed so many millions over the course of the past 50, 60 years, even. Um, so much CIA interventionism in, in the name of liberty and democracy, um, which has only only had bloodshed. But then the question is, I guess, like, what are we doing it for? And do we recognize the existence of a financier oligarchy or not? Like, are you trying to liberate humanity from a financier oligarchy, which is doing these things? Or are you just labeling one particular leader or another as the bad thing? of a cert of a of, of you know this nation is bad because of this leader right and make and then you can make a whole villainous image and then justify the overthrow of that leader on behalf of 
the same financier oligarchy that caused the problems to begin with and that that brings in imf conditionalities that brings in uh corporations that then become the the de facto ruler of that society but in your mind how do you it's something that a lot of people struggle with and and i'm curious uh, how you think about the um the thing called deep state you know like every nation has like elements of corruption there's something international which is beyond nations which has been uh infesting and inducing nations to uh to undermine their own self-interest for a long time how do you explain this to people and i'm, I'm sorry i'm asking you this kind of question when we're, we're three minutes yeah. from the break but anyway <laughs> <laughs> well well in terms of the deep state people will treat this as a conspiracy theory but you know there is a deep bureaucracy of uh uh, professional politicians who, who who are not necessarily elected. I think you saw this in the Trump era, the ones who wanted to undermine him. Um, oh, sorry, I forgot the first question again. Um, oh, well, that, that's pretty much it. How do you how do you characterize the uh, the international? Like, what is yeah, this yeah. thing called deep state? And and as as a phenomenon in in global politics, historic and <clears throat> and present, you know. Well, I think the globalization now kind of reflect the same problem in the late 19th century. The problem was, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily harmonize with uh, with democracy either. You have uh, uh, often an interest by an economic and political elites, which doesn't necessarily is rooted anymore in the nation state. And uh, as a result, uh, you, you can you can also not really control the balance between capital and labor, really, when when the capital is doesn't have loyalty to any specific borders so you can't really manage it you can't regulate anymore you have this concentration of wealth uh, which builds up and uh, and uh, of course uh, on workers if it's not uh, you know effective to produce it domestically anymore you can export the jobs because the people again you're not uh, in this uh, modern society you're not necessarily have any loyalty to the people who are there so suddenly now we begin to speak about the elites versus the actual people and this is the populist mm -hmm. rhetoric which we saw both right. 19th century and now and uh, i think this is the, the 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 very natural consequences after period of globalization is people say well listen these elites concentrate a lot of wealth do not have an interest in the nation and then you have a uh, yeah this uh yeah, elite uh, and the uh, the people, if you will, uh, split, uh, which many uh, populists would seize upon. Would you say that that's a that's a different characteristic between, let's say, uh, China's way of doing economics or, or capitalism versus the West, whereas here we have the 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 so-called private interests that have taken control of nation states, whereas in China the, the sovereignty of the nation state has a um, an influence on top of or uh, the private sector, because no, you know. Would you say that that's yeah. a, a fair characterization, or do you think that that's too simplistic? No, I, th I think uh, the, the key difference to where I see it is uh, uh, that the United States changed its uh, capitalist system to a large extent because it used to be industrial uh, capitalism in which it uh, aimed to reduce rent seekers, uh, and uh, and now it's uh, you know the rent seekers are. That, that section has blown up completely, especially in the finance industry, uh, you know, real estate, all of this. And I I think that in, in the again, in the 19th century, we saw the, the rise of the United States. Well, what did they want to do? They wanted to tax rent seekers, you know, the ones who owned the, the land, uh, you know, anything from finance, where we effectively make money without contributing to the production. And you use that money to build infrastructure, because once you use uh, taxed money to build infrastructure, it elevates the standard of living, your companies become more effective, they're competitive in international markets. This is what China does. This is what the United States used to do. Uh, but this is one of the problems 
business now. The United States can't compete with China anymore because you know, you're going to produce something in the United States. Everyone is sucking out uh, some of the productivity. Uh, productivity. Everyone needs to get paid, even though, you know, look at the lawyer class, for example. There, there's there's too too many people sucking money out of the productive process, and China doesn't have this. They kind of mi minimize the rent seekers, so the U.S. can't compete. The financialized economy of the U.S. can't compete against the industrial economy of China anymore, and I think this is the main problem. This is uh, why the economic conflict between the U.S. and China uh, creates an incentive for the United States to introduce military might instead. So that's perfect. Again, no, that that's perfect. Let, let, we're gonna we're gonna keep on pulling on this when we come back from a, a short commercial break on TNT Radio's Connecting the Dots. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Remember how exercised over binders Democrats were in 2012 when Mitt Romney said that in Massachusetts they had binders full of women they were looking to bring into state government? He was referring, of course, to binders full of resumes, but that didn't matter to the left. No, they were mannequin in a panic over binders. Well, they're mannequin in a panic over a binder now, too, only it's a missing binder. A binder we believe contains all the receipts to lay Operation Crossfire Hurricane, the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax, and all of the 2020 election interference solely at the feet of CIA, FBI, the Obama administration and his handlers, and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. If this is true, and that the president took the binder and secreted it outside the purview of FBI. That would explain the jackbooted thug raid of Mar-a-Lago. That would explain the illegal criminal charges in the documents case brought by Jack Smith. And it would explain why they're so mannequin in a panic over the binder now. If they want to bring Hillary in as the nominee over Stumblebum Joe, Donald Trump will have a Trump card to play that will drive a wooden stake through the evil heart of the Democrat Party once and for all. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for today's News Talk TNT. Food isn't just fuel to live, it's fuel to grow. My family relied on public assistance to help provide meals for us. These meals fueled my involvement in theater and the arts as a child, which fostered my love for acting. The Feeding America network of food banks helps millions of people put food on the table. When people are fed, futures are nourished. Join the movement to end hunger, and together we can open endless possibilities for people to thrive. Visit feedingamerica.org slash act now. Perception versus the truth. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Aaron on today's News Talk TNT Radio. All right, welcome back to the third segment of the first hour where I've been talking with Glenn Deason about uh, about his book, um, Ukraine and the Eurasian World Order. We've talked about Westphalia. We've talked about liberalism, the, 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 the sources of the rot that brought us to the current corruption, decadence, decay, and empire. Um, and we're looking at different points that lessons of the past can help us uh, not only not replicate certain mistakes, but really revive a, a, a fitness to survive that we may have once had that we have forgotten. And the question of how is Eurasia, how is the BRICS, how is China, how are how is Russia, how are they thinking in a more healthy manner about certain fundamental ideas of economics, self-interest, uh, cooperation that we maybe once had it? I know myself, what, what really struck me in, in reading through your book was your emphasis upon 
a current of Western tradition expressed in political economy that has nearly been wiped out of our collective memories. For those who have been through the school systems of the West, we don't really get to study and, and appreciate the importance of people like Alexander Hamilton, Friedrich List, Sergei Vita, um, Henry Carey. Like these are names that we we don't get to appreciate the the weight of what they were doing and how that idea of um, industrial capitalism not only gave rise to so much good, so much that pulled us out of poverty into into a, a into prosperity, but had a had a has seen a, a revival in an ironic way in nations which we are being told are our natural enemies, which I find is, is a really incredible irony. Um, could you speak a little bit more about what was this, this Vita list, this other system that obviously you're hoping can be rekindled as a memory as well as an action in the West? Well, it was uh, recognition, again, 19th century, that... Uh, um, although in the beginning that uh, if you wanted to be a sovereign state, uh, you needed to industrialize as well, because when you have an economic hegemon like Britain, uh, all the other countries uh, effectively became excessively dependent. You know, you're more dependent on Britain than Britain is on you. That's going to translate into political influence. So you, you saw first in the United States, people like Alexander Hamilton uh, warning very much against this. You know, we're not going to be able to keep our political independence unless we develop the economic uh, tools for it. So they developed then the American system. And it's interesting because it has three pillars. And you actually see the same now with the Chinese and Russians there. I, I argue they're building an American system because the Americans said we need the first pillar would be strategic industries. We have to develop our own manufacturing so we're not dependent on the British for it. Second, we need to have physical transportation corridors. So, you know, your ports and roads. And when the railroad came, that one too. And the third uh, pillar was a financial uh, instruments. So a national bank and, of course, developing your own currency so you don't rely on the British for this. And this became very powerful. It drove uh, America towards great success throughout the 19th century. And, you know, the British, uh, also the, the French, the Germans, the Russians, they all began to copy it. The Japanese as well. They also had advisors actually from America teaching them the American system. And now what I argue is uh, to a large extent, this is what the Chinese are doing now. People talk about are they liberal economy, are they market economy or are they communist? No, they're, they're following the same uh, economic nationalist policies. They want independence from the United States, much like the Americans wanted independence from Britain. And they do the same, the same pillars. The first one, uh, the strategic industries. They got very powerful industrial policy. Uh, China 2025, when they want to develop effectively all the leading technologies. Second would be the physical corridors. They got the Belt and Road Initiative putting trillions of dollars into connecting effectively the whole world uh, with uh, yeah, everything, digital cables, uh, roads, ports, uh, ensuring that they're not reliant on uh, foreign ones. And the third one, of course, is you know developing their own uh, national uh, development banks, using the, their own local currencies. And um, Russia is, by the way, doing exactly the same. If you go to any European country, uh, all our uh, digital uh, main companies are all American. In Russia, all the main, the largest digital giants, uh, you know, who makes the self-driving cars, the uh, yeah, the e-shopping the e or the, what do you call, uh, the uh, search Commerce. engines, all of this. Yeah, yeah, they're all, all, all domestic. Uh, they're all local dominant. And if they need partners, they favor the Chinese as a junior partner. But also they have the same. They're developing the Arctic Corridor 
from east to west. Of course, now they want to do it with the Chinese and Indians because we don't want to work with them. They have this north-south corridor they're building with the India, Iran, and to Russia. And also, of course, they don't want to de-dollarizing and de-uranizing as quick as they can. They don't want to use our currencies anymore, developing their own banks. So everything is changing in a, in a, in a huge uh, hurry. And, uh, uh, and they're effectively following the same system we had, uh, or the Americans, sorry. That was fantastic. What an efficient just exposition of the difference of of how they're thinking about all of these fundamentals. Um, on the issue of banking, um, national controls or over banking, um, in what way does that express itself? Like what sort of mechanisms have been brought online through the BRICS, China, Russia? What sort of uh, what sort of things are they are they working with? Well, they're, they're working on developing uh, all, all their own common institutions with economic competencies. So uh, everything which encompasses the, the trade agreements, uh, the developing you know cooperation between the different tech hubs uh, across the regions. Uh, they, uh, of course, uh, they they're also working on. Uh, the banks are also help because you know, of the synergy behind between all this. So the banks, of course, are financing the uh, the new transportation corridors and. Uh, this idea of de-dollarizing as well, something that's catching on, like the Russians and Chinese spearheaded it, but it's now spreading uh, to all their partners and other partners are beginning to do it with, with each other as well. Uh, but the thing is, once you give economic competencies, uh, then there could be the concern that all economic power is concentrated in one place such as, for example, the United States after the Second World War. It, uh, those three, this is what gave it dominance. It uh, had all the best technologies, all the uh, largest industries. It seized control over lar large uh, Middle Eastern oil resources. Second, you know, it controlled the seas, which is the corridors. And the third, you know, it, uh, through the Bretton Woods system, it uh, controlled, you know, IMF, or at least the dominant position, and the World Bank. Now, uh, what the concern for countries like Russia is, what if, you know, can we go back to Tucker Carlson, what if the Chinese become too dominant? Aren't you worried? Well, not really, because they, they say if the Chinese wanted uh, to be a hegemon like the United States, that would be a problem. But the Chinese say we, we don't need a hegemon. Uh, we can, and for the Russians, they don't have to be as strong as the Chinese necessarily. All they have to do is ensure that uh, when you develop these institutions, bring in other giants. So, for example, when they decided to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, it used to be more of a security organization with Russia, China, and the Central Asian countries. So when they decided let's give economic competencies to this institution, the first thing, of course, for Russia would be concerned. Well, all the economic power is in uh, Chinese hands. So if it goes from security to economic, that means Russia would have to, you know, give uh, the mantle to the Chinese, who would be able to dominate. So this isn't great. But then they brought in, you know, India, Pakistan, other, especially India, then like one of the big players. Now China will still lead; it will be the largest economy, but it can no longer it can dominate. And this is also what you see in BRICS. Yes, the Chinese economy is the biggest, but they're also willing to bring in all these other large actors, which means they're not able to dictate the terms. So again, they can lead but not dominate. Yes, and this that's, is uh, that's great. What wants? Yeah, no, I think it's an important point of discernment. And um, the, the idea, I think when I, when I, because I also uh, follow the developments around the Belt and Road Initiative of quite, quite closely. And the thing that really strikes me is this emphasis upon development corridors. So when you're building a rail between countries, you're not just building the rail, you're also building pipelines, you're building a whole impetus for manufacturing hubs, who's going to produce the material, like what type of new industries can be created now that you've just cut transportation times down by 95% between 
two or three or four uh, adjacent nations that have otherwise been kept separate. So there's all sorts of of points of now, well, who's who's going to have the education to to perform and and have the trade uh, under like the, the the techniques that they will need to learn to be able to operate the machines to be within those industries. What type of new purchasing power will they have? And there's this whole idea of creating abundance, of acting on potential. And even Putin said uh, he cited uh, Otto von Bismarck in his uh, his speech with or his discussion with Tucker when he was describing hey, even Otto, Otto von Bismarck said everything is potential. And I think that that's a lesson that we really need to learn. And and I think you've you've tapped into it very nicely. Is that what made the or actually, I would ask you, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming I'm imposing things on you, but would you say that the American system that you described of Alexander Hamilton, Vita, the 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 the, Eras the E. Peshine Smith groups in, in Japan, that they were more potential oriented when they were thinking about economic value than they were about uh, geopolitical interests or things, things like that? Well, uh, they're only effective to the extent they can uh, add value. So I think... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, in sh short answer, yes, uh, uh, much more effective. And uh, uh, but but of course, it's a different system than uh, you can say the the hegemonic systems. The argument was uh, that um, that the maritime powers they had more of an imperial design almost because if you know the British and the Americans as being you know uh, more or less island states or de facto island states. Uh, they would uh, have an incentive if they're going to effectively dominate the world. How, how would they do this? They would have to, uh, you know, keep the you know Chinese away from the Russians, Russians away from the Turks, Germans away from the Russians, you know, Indians away from the Chinese. So you, there's a need to divide effectively and conquer. And uh, well, what you often see in, in the Eurasian space, which is why I also refer to it as a Eurasian Westphalia, is uh, the, the connectivity. It's uh, the strength doesn't come from division with with all these neighbors on this huge continent uh, between you know the Atlantic and Pacific. Instead, you need growing connectivity, and this is why there's an incentive now for you know all these countries to begin to harmonize their interests. And this is why it's always more inducive, I think, for peace. Because let's you know look when, for example, the United States went into are in the Middle East. Well, what do they have to do? Well, they have to keep the Iranians and the Arabs uh, at odds because as long as they have tensions. You know the Arabs will weaken the Iranians, and uh, in this conflict, the Arabs will be dependent on the U.S. So you weaken your adversaries, and you make your allies dependent. What happened when the Chinese entered the region? They they couldn't do this. Uh, well, they didn't want to do this. So if they want to get close with the Iranians, they also have to get close with the Arabs because they don't want to alienate one side. So they then uh, pushed a peace agreement uh, for the Saudis and Iran to begin to restore relations again. And uh, and what what happened? Well, first uh, the Arabs began. They they don't want to go against the Iranians now. And you even see that in the current crisis, the United Arab Emirates, they, they put restrictions on the US to use their territory to attack even the uh, Iranian proxies. The Saudis want to, don't want to join any more bombing Yemen as they did in the past. And even after this, the former head of Mossad in Israel, after this uh, peace agreement, he came out in the media and suggested, listen, we can't be the only ones standing here fighting against the Iranians. But there's no reason we have to. We can actually make a peace deal with them as well. So you create this uh, this economic system. It creates more incentives for countries to uh, to pursue peaceful relations and harmonize their interests instead of always having this incentive for conflict to yeah, divide countries into weakened adversaries versus dependent allies. So let, let's let's sort of end on 
towards this question that you just raised. Because this is high on everybody's mind. Obviously, things could still spiral out of control. Our, our everyone's heart who looks at, at what's going on in the Middle East, and especially in, in um, the the massive loss of lives in uh, in Gaza. I mean, it's well over thirty thousand people have have been killed, mostly civilians, most a lot of children. Um, more than I, I think in the in the entire the entire time that there has been a conflict with Russia, there is now more loss of, ch of more children have died than in that whole conflict as far as uh, innocent deaths. Um, you're saying that the former head of Mossad even spoke reasonably about this providing a gateway towards peace. There's there's calls between uh, El-Sisi and, and Erdogan and Lula currently calling for uh, just, you know, some some off ramp, some recognition of a Palestinian state and some idea of just stopping the killing. Um, what does this look like for you? I think people need to just have some ideas of what sort of scenarios could you see that could positively provide, put out the fires and provide some sort of a healing process, um, with everything that's happened. And we only have a couple of minutes here to, to have a very, very dense answer. <laughs> to solve the Middle Eastern question. Yeah, no, well, I, I think that the, the, uh, well, obviously then, then there's, there's not many solutions to it if you want a for complete Israeli victory, because uh, how are you going to live with all these Palestinians? Either it's ethnic cleansing or it's genocide or it's uh, having all of them live in an apartheid system. Otherwise, you can't have half the population not being Jewish if you want a Jewish nation state. Now, I think for the Israelis, it's often framed very, you know, or pro or anti-Israel. Like my point is that this uh, horrible conflict is not even in their interest because Yes, for the past few decades, they've been able to, you know, not make necessarily any peace with their neighbors and uh, and uh, simply not make any compromise because they always have the United States in their back to either arm them or to join in if it's necessary. Uh, so what you see now is all their neighbors getting more and more powerful. Uh, you have new great powers with less sympathies from, you know, China and uh, Russia. And the United States is in relative decline. If you're Israel now, if you were a friend, you would advise them, listen, this is the time to make a deal. You know, get a state for the Palestinians. Because uh, if if not, if you're going to go with this, uh, you know, uh, huge conflict, not just with Palestinians, but all your neighbors, uh, you're not going to have the same backing anymore. So it, this is really the right time for Israel to make a deal. Uh, that's why I'm a bit surprised they're so stubborn on uh, seemingly defeating everyone. It's... Uh, yeah, I I don't think they're acting in their own interest. I think this is, uh, yeah, great shame. The uh, the thank you um for that for that concise answer, and uh, I agree. We we hope that Israel is able to recognize what their true self interest is before it's too late. Um, certainly, there's so much opportunity for prosperity and cooperation. You know, it it, it boggles the mind how much uh self sabotage is going on here. Um. For, you, we hope that, and you write towards the end of your book that the we're that a new Eurasian or um um a Eurasian states are spearheading the transition to a multipolar Westphalian world order with Eurasian characteristics. How could Eurasia avoid falling into the trap of becoming an empire? Uh, simply by being too too multipolar, I think it's uh, too many different centers, and there wouldn't be the same concentration of power. And that's why I also finished the last chapter, I think, writing about Adam Smith, because he actually wrote this, the discovery of the East Indies in America. He called it the two greatest discoveries in uh, modern times, in human history, because it connected Perfect. the world. But he said, this will too much concentration of power, it brings disaster to everyone else. So he, dis he dreamt of a more even distribution of power. All right, great this power comes great responsibility, and absolute power will always destroy absolutely and corrupt absolutely. So with that, pick up Glenn Deason's book, as soon as possible, right now, Ukraine War and the Eurasian World Order. 
and we will come back with a discussion on more geopolitics on Connecting the Dots on TNTRadio.live.